Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, I thank you so much again for bringing us here. Thank you for another year um, into 2021. I pray that as we um, now come together to study your word, that you can give us some um, practical morals, some, some things in your word that you want us to learn. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so um, did you guys look at the title today? It wasn't very creative, mind you, but you know, it, it does what it says on the tin. Uh, three, three stories of Elijah, or three tales of Elijah, or something like that. Three stories of Elisha, yeah. So, um, so we're gonna go, we're gonna head to Second Kings, um, and we're gonna look at three separate stories of the life of Elisha. Now, um, there's a lot of stuff that happens to Elisha as we um, throughout his life. So I thought I'd just pick out these three stories because they're particularly um, either strange or amazing. So I thought, let's go with these these stories, and then we can um, we can break them down. But before we get there, just to um, help us with our, our understanding of the history as we go through Kings and Chronicles. So last week, what did we do? Uh, am I remembering correctly? Was it Rehoboam? It was not Rehoboam. That was probably the week before. Oh, was it the prophet? Um, okay, no, sorry. That was the week before. Then it, wow. before that was Rehoboam. What was last week? It was the king. Oh. King of Judah. Oh, um, yes, my guy. Um, Is it A? So again? So it's not for A. Yeah, yeah, A. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, what's his name? Asa. 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 King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king. He did a lot of good stuff. Um, and we're not going to read about him, but he generally was a good king. Um, he had a very small slip right at the end, as most of them do, but he was generally a good king, right? So um, nothing nothing too too uh, bad to read about Jehoshaphat. He he kept idols out of out of Judah, he prospered, um, he he did bits. So Good pleasure. So um, we're going to go, as I said, back up to the kingdom of Israel. So last time we were in the kingdom of Israel, we were with Ahab and Elijah. And now we're just going to be following on from that train to um, obviously Elisha. So Second Kings chapter two. And we are going to read from verse 19. But before we get to verse 19, um, I think we just need to describe um, the scene. In fact, actually, let's read the story first and then we'll kind of go through it and describe the scene um, afterwards. So we're going to read from verse 19 to verse 
verse 19 to verse 25? It's chapter 2. It's chapter 2, right? 2 Kings chapter 2. Yeah. Okay, verse 19. And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord is here, but the water is naught and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise. And they put salt therein, and they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the springs of the water and cast the salt in there and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or, bar or barren land. The waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elijah, which he spake. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. As he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cast them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. And I'm just going to read the last one. And he went thence to Mount Carmel. And from thence, he returned to Samaria. <laughs> Great. Okay. So before we get into that story, and I want you guys to kind of tell me what the uh, the moral of that story is, because there is some debate. But um, but before we break down the story, right, we're just going to uh, like paint the scene a little bit. So just before this, we have Elisha and Elijah together. And Elisha gets the feeling that Elijah is not going to be with him for much longer. So um, Elijah says, look, um, ask of me anything and I'll give it to you. And Elisha says, knowing like how deep Elijah was, um, said, give me a double portion of your spirit. So when we think about Elisha, right? And obviously he is generally um, kind of known as maybe Elijah's psychic, his student. But when we talk about Elisha and some of the stories that Elisha goes through, Elisha was was a full-blown prophet in his own right, trust me, um, and equals, if not surpasses, Elijah's um, ministry outside of, obviously, Elijah got taken up into a fiery chariot to heaven. So he got a double spirit, yeah? And from that, he um, he took his mantle, which was like um, his coat. It was like a fur coat. Um, and he kind of took on the, um, the the responsibilities of Elijah as like the main prophet of Israel. So we come to this story, and really we want to I want to focus on verses twenty three to twenty five, uh, mainly about the she bears. So does anyone want to try and break this story down in terms of what is going on? Firstly, like what what happened? I once told this story as a children's story. Um, and I think I think the moral that I took from it was just be careful about mocking God's people. And that is like one of the ones that you can just read it and take straight off the bat. Cool, all right. Be careful of mocking God's people. Okay. Anyone else? Okay, someone just explain like what happened in the story. 
Like, just, it's only three verses, but just break down what just happened. Okay, so the end of chapter two, yeah? Yeah, end of chapter two. Okay, so he's traveling. Um, He's going from, where is it, from Bethel? Or he's going toward Bethel. Okay, stop there, right? What, what do we know Bethel to be? Does anyone uh, like recognize the name Bethel and understand its significance? I'm sure this is something to do with Jacob or Isaac. One of them back there. Uh, um, but wasn't Bethel established as like uh, a place where God moved or something? Um, kind of. Well, the, actually, the opposite, but along the same lines. Right. So Bethel was known. Okay. So remember when we talked about um, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, yeah? Um, and we looked at the story, especially with Jeroboam, once he got to establish the, the kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes of Israel, what did he do? The first act he did was what? What was the first thing Jeroboam did when he became king? Uh, uh, wasn't it? Actually, no, no, I was going to say, I was going to say he built the calves or the... Yeah, you know. that's right, right? He built the calves, right? The first thing he did when he became king, he thought, oh, everyone's going to go to, um, everyone's going to go to Jerusalem to worship. I'm going to, um, I'm going to set up these two calves. One was in Bethel and one was in Dan. So one in the north of the Israelite kingdom and one um, in the south of the, Israel, um, the kingdom of Israel. So... When we hear Bethel now, and since then it's been a place of idol worship, yeah? So when we see Bethel now, understand that as he's on his way to Bethel, right, it's, it's um, the Bethel is known for idol worship, yeah? That's an important part of this. But yeah, sorry, Nathan, continue with the story. Uh, well... Some children come and start taking the mick out of him for being bored. <laughs> it's mad to think that that was happening back then. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, these, so these kids, circle kids, come out and say, hey, Baldy, go up to Bethel, right? <laughs> Baldy, go, go up, right? Now, what do you guys think the significance of him being bored is? No clue. No, anyone know what the significance of him being bored is? No? Okay, cool. Well, Elijah, right, the prophet who came before him was known as the hairy prophet, right? So if Elijah is known as the hairy prophet, I don't know if that meant that he had long hair on his head or because of the mantle he wore or whatever it was, but he was known as the hairy prophet. So for, him, for this new prophet, who's just come um, on the scene, who's taken over for Elijah, for them to call him, hey, Baldy, what are they trying to say? I think they're trying to imply you're not as good as who, you, who you're coming after. Exactly, right? They're trying to say, look, um, uh, we, we missed Elijah almost. <laughs> Where's your hair? You know what I mean? Elijah, was, was it looking like this? 
And when they send, tell him to go up, right, to Bethel, what are they trying to say? Mm. If they're telling him, look, you and Elijah, you, you, you can't follow Elijah's footsteps, go up to this heathen city where they're, where they're worshipping idols, what are they really trying to tell him? Mad. When they're trying to tell him that he, God can't work through you, basically. Agree, God can't work for you, but then do what instead? You might as well be a, a pagan prophet, I guess. Trust me, go be a pagan prophet. You know what I mean? Go be a pagan prophet. So, so it wasn't just, oh, hey, Baldy. It was, hey, Baldy. but really, disrespect. It was disrespectful. It was you're not a yeah. Elijah, and for more so, mm. go and be a heathen prophet. Mm. Then what happened? Two bears came out of the woods and yammed them. <laughs> right, <laughs> so Elijah. This is God with a sense of humor here, because instantly he punished huh? them. <laughs> Instantly, he punched them. They told him to go be a pagan prophet, and man didn't even have to speak. God made nature move. Well, it says he cursed them, right? So he looked back, mm. he says, Turn back, and he looked to them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. So, man, it's like Elijah just said, I curse you in the name of the Lord, right? And as he said, Daniel, two she bears came out and ate or mauled 42. Listen, of those you know boys. what? What baffles me, yeah, is the fact that only 42 got caught. How many were there? You get me. You get me. Who thinks, who thinks this is harsh? It's, it's almost impossible to say it's not. <laughs> Break that down. It's impossible to say it's not. Why would you say actually, that? Actually, actually, no. You could view that in two camps because... Especially in the Old Testament, we tend to see, I don't know, sometimes it looks like the Israelites and, you know, sometimes we look and we say God is doing a madness. But um, I don't know, part, partially we know it to just be like the way things were back then. And like, this could be in line of this. Like, you know, we wouldn't expect this to happen in the New Testament, you get me? Um... But... um. Although you say that, but you know, I've seen some things happening in the New Testament, you know what I mean? Oh, and that's as a fire in my argument. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. And I'm not saying that, you know, the bottom line is we know that God doesn't change. But um I I guess that in my mind I've I've always thought of this as harsh. Cool, right? And and to be honest, as you read it, you probably think, yeah, it's a bit harsh. I mean, they, they're teasing him for being bored. Um, on the surface, you may see that. And then, boy, 42 children got, got eaten. But as we um, go a bit deeper into the story, we start to understand there's, there's actually two, um, there's two things within this. One is a bit more theologically relevant um, in terms of, like, sim symbolism of this. And one is more, um, is more obvious within the text, if you look at the, the, um, the context of the text. So number one, right? Elisha has just become Elijah's successor. And 
not only, I mean, he goes through this whole thing of, of throwing down Elijah's mantle, splitting the Jordan, um, walking through it, kind of signifying that he's going to be the new prophet. He's got double spirit. He's got double the, the spirit of Elijah. Uh, he's just cleaned up the water in this place and now he's moving to Bethel, right? And these boys who are probably not children, they're likely to be, you know, um, late teens, early 20s. Why I say that is because the same word that is used for um, boys or little children in this um, text is also used um, in several other places. For example, where David was um, in the field killing um, lions and bears. And we know David wasn't a toddler when he was doing that, you understand? Um, same word is used for Solomon before he became king. And Solomon became king at 20, mid-20s, 25, I think, but somewhere in his mid-20s, right? So it's not necessarily talk, firstly talking about little kids. It's likely to be like young men. Um, I think the word actually means um, a, a man who hasn't yet um, had a family, got a wife or had a family. So young men who haven't quite had families or anything like that. And as you said, there's likely to be more than 42 of them, likely to be maybe 100, I don't know. Um, and they're during at God's prophet. I feel attacked. You know, the definition that you gave is just literally this gang of jobless people. Like that. That's how it's describing them. <laughs> but you know what? As you said this, Reese, I think less and less that the punishment is harsh. I think <laughs> they knew what they were doing. <laughs> you brought it on yourself, to be honest. Like, you knew this guy is a man of God just by the things he's done. Bruv, he's just healed your village's water and you men are trying to be disrespectful like that. Now, you get what you deserve. For sure. And, I mean, when we look at um, things like this, we've got to understand the content, like, the, the ramifications of God doing nothing in the scenario. They're just outside the heathen um, place of worship, right? God's main prophet is in the, in the scene. And at this point, he hasn't really done anything other than the cleaning of water, which he just did. So his reputation is not really built at this point. Later on in, in, in his stories, we'll understand like his reputation is there full and strong. But at the moment, his reputation isn't really there at this point. So if God lets this go, he's letting a, um, he's setting a precedent for, you can do anything to my people. And so the first real um, takeaway from this is God backs his own. When you're on his side and when you're walking with God, he's going to back you. Yeah, so that's number one. Number two is a bit more symbolic. So um, in the story, there is actually a mirror story um, elsewhere in the Bible, and it's found in um, Genesis 6. What is the story in Genesis 6 for the Bible scholars out there? What story do we find in Genesis 6? The flood. The flood, Noah's Ark, right? So um, what happens in Noah's Ark is Noah becomes, is called by God, same way Elisha is called by God. Um, he then, um, Elisha picks up the mantle of Elijah, which is um, animal skin, right? Same way, um, it's similar symbolicness to Noah having um, animals in the ark. 
then they both have to pass through a, 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 a season of water. So obviously the flood with Noah and um, the, the river Jordan with, um, with Elisha. And then what happens is that there is um, an area of nakedness. What happens um, in after the flood, Noah comes out, same way after Elisha comes out to start his ministry. And what happens with Noah? Should we go there? Do we need to read it? What happens with Noah after the flood happens? They're out of the flood and what happens? Um, Noah was drunk. And Noah was drunk. Yeah, and he was naked. And then um, one of his sons, I believe, Canaan, Canaan saw him naked. And right. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 one. So Noah after the flood got drunk, right? And as he when he's drunk, he's naked, almost lying on the floor, almost like let's say passed out on the floor for, from from the alcohol, right? And what happens? His son comes to see him. What does his son do? Doesn't he get his brothers? He does. He goes to get his brothers. But what is implied in the text is that he doesn't do what he should do, right? So, so somewhere in here of him going to get his brothers, there's some kind of um, shaming Noah's nakedness, right? Um, and then he goes and gets his brothers, and what does his brothers do? Um, they are, if I remember correctly, they're actually very careful uh, not to look and to just cover up their father. Exactly, right? So they, they, they bring a garment, they, they make sure they don't look at his nakedness and they cover him up, right? So in the same way, we see now Elisha and the nakedness of his head, right, his baldness, um, and so people treating him in a way they shouldn't treat someone after looking at their nakedness. And then in the same way Elijah curse, Elisha curses the boys, the same way um, uh, Ham, which is the son that saw his nakedness, got cursed after this ordeal. And Ham was then, like, cursed, his whole, his whole line was cursed. Like, Canaan wasn't going to be his home. Like, the other two sons were blessed, and they're going to, like, Canaan will serve them, but Ham is not going to be that way, right? And so we see after someone being naked, where, why, when, when you see symbolic things in the Bible, there is a purpose. So you can see... Um, this, a similar message in both, right? And the message in both is when you see someone's nakedness, how do you respond? What do we think nakedness symbolizes for us today, like practically? What is nakedness? Shame. Shame. Um, it is shame, but, but a little bit um, before you get to maybe shame. If you're naked somewhere, what like what what's the feeling you would get? Say say if you if you were about to feel shame, what would you feel before you felt the shame? 
Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Perfect. Vulnerable. Right? The nakedness shows some element of vulnerability. Noah was vulnerable at that point in time. And Elisha was vulnerable in the sense that he had just taken over Elijah's mantle. And we know from his request to have double of his spirit suggests that he thought for himself that he wasn't quite at the place where he, he could take over Elijah. Right? So there was some element of vulnerability that these two groups of people were attacking. And then they got punished. So what does that tell what does that tell us? Come on, guys, you gotta work with me here. What like if 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 two if in two scenarios someone is seen attacking someone's vulnerability and they got cursed afterwards and a pretty bad curse at that, what what is the, what are we trying to say? You don't attack people's vulnerabilities. You don't attack people's vulnerabilities. Simple. Like it's so easy to think, oh, I don't like this person and I know where they're weak. That's where I'm going to hit them. But there is this idea that if you do that, then there is going to be repercussions. Some way, shape or form, it's not good. Yeah, if you've got a problem with someone, at least like be upfront about it. Don't like go after the very thing that they're, they feel bad about already. Yeah, and that can be people in church, be people in leadership, be it um, people outside. Like the, the principle here is don't go after people when they're weak. Be be um, be loving. Be sympathetic. Yeah. Okay. So that's story one of the day, right? We're going to go on to story two. Nathan, you want to say something before we move on? Um. No. Okay. Actually, okay. no. <laughs> you sure? All right. Um. Okay, so the next story, again, um, I, I chose these ones specifically because um, they're either strange or um, or seemingly um, stood out to me, right? So we're going to go to um, 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to hear another story around Elisha. And we're going to read from chapter, I'm uh, sorry, verse 20. In fact, sorry, we're going to read from verse 15. So from verse 15 to, to verse 27. But before we read, let me just give you a little bit of a background story. So the people at the time, the, the, the kingdom at the time was the, the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian Empire was a lot like um, the Babylonian Empire or the Medes and the Persians or or so on and so forth. It was just there happened after, sorry, before Daniel's prophecy. So if the if the um, say um, statue that we see in Daniel um, had another metal and it say platinum above the gold, that would be the Assyrian Empire, right? So it goes the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonians, Medes and Persians, Greeks, Romans, etc. Right. So the Assyrian Empire is kind of what's running things at this point, and. Um, and the Syrian general um, has got leprosy. 
And so he's he he wants to find out where he can get this thing fixed. So he goes to the king of Israel and he says, Look, you gotta sort out my leprosy. And the king of Israel is sweating. He's like, What do you mean? Like, I'm a king, I'm not like I'm not a magician, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a prophet. I mean, what do you want from me? I can't just be healing people's leprosy. Right? And then he says, you know what? Um, and then Elisha hears about the king being distressed about this guy's request. So Elisha says, you know what, send him to me and I'll sort him out. So we pick up the story from when Elisha said, come, um, we'll sort him out, right? Um, actually, sorry, we don't pick up the story there, pick up the story just after there. So what happens is the man comes to Elisha. Elisha says, um, to get rid of your leprosy, you need to go and wash yourself in the Jordan seven times. Now, the Jordan was a dirty river and you have leprosy. Do, do we understand what leprosy is? Can someone describe to me what so leprosy is? Skin condition, but it's actually, I believe it's a fleshy skin condition. So it does spread, it does degrade your skin. And yeah, it, if it's on your face, then you're going to see your looks. Cool, exactly, right? It's a flesh-eating condition, yeah? And it spreads. So, and and when we say flesh-eating, you've got sores all over your hand, you've got open wounds, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, it's not pretty, right? And if you're going to wash your arm in something where you've got open flesh and open wounds, it's likely not going to be somewhere where it's dirty, yeah? You want to go wash where it's clean. But Elijah says, go wash yourself in the Jordan seven times and it will clean your arm. Naaman, um, the, the Syrian officer, doesn't like that. He's like, what do you mean? There's several other bodies of water that are much cleaner than the Jordan. Can't you send me there? And he's like, no, you have to wash in the Jordan. So he humbles himself and he's like, you know what? Fine, I'll do it. He washes himself seven times in the Jordan and his arm is healed. It, the, the Bible says it, it, his arm became like a little child's arm, like, like the skin was new. Yeah. And so Haman is ecstatic. So this is where we pick up the story. Yeah. So um, verse 15, and we're going to go um, up to verse 27. Um, what chapter are we in? Sorry, um, chapter five, Second Kings chapter five, 15 to 27. I'm going to read the first two and then someone else can Second chapter 5 from verse 15. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. He said, Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth, behold, sorry, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Verse 17. Mm, 17. If you, if you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as, as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices 
to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Raymond to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Raymond, may the Lord forgive your servants for this. I'm sorry, I have to interject here because I've never heard that version. What version are you reading? Um, NIV. I like that because man actually said already there's certain things I can't do due to my status. Can God forgive me for this? Like, it's mad how genuine he was considering this is an Assyrian officer who's been raised and taught and trained and all them things from, from childhood. So what is happening um, in the story so far? In terms of what we just read, what's happening in the story? Um, Naaman, after being healed, has gone back to Elisha. Elisha has a servant, by the way. And um, he said, take these gifts. You know, your God is the only God. The God of Israel is the only God take these gifts and Elisha says no and he urges him and he says no and then he goes on to say um you know can I not can I at least give some gifts to your servant and Elisha says yep and um actually no Elisha doesn't say no yet but he also asks if God will forgive him for the fact that he is Naaman the Assyrian and he's going back to Syria and the Syrians, the Syrians worship another God. And so he's going to be back inside in the temple of this other God. And he's basically saying, I will offer sacrifices. I will worship your God. But I am obviously an Assyrian and I need to um, do what my king commands. Cool. And then Elisha says, Funnily enough, go in peace. So I don't know if he's accepting what he said. It's like, okay, well, you know, God will accept that, that's fine. Or he's kind of saying, I can't really tell you that's okay, but go in peace kind of thing. I'm not really sure. But anyway, he says, go in peace. And he departed from him a little way. So he has wanted to give Elisha, um, Elisha money for healing his arm, suggesting to him what, what if, if you're like, oh, let me pay you. What, what are you suggesting? If Elisha had taken the money, what would it mean? Come on, guys. If you if 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 Elisha had taken the money, what would be the difference? Versus him not taking the money. Taking credit. Taking credit, part of it, yeah. But also, it's like taking credit and saying, yeah, you can buy you can buy things like this. Just come to me next time you've got a problem, give me some money and I'll sort you out. Selling blessings. Yeah? So Elisha doesn't like that whole idea. 
And he's like, you know what? We're going to squash this. I don't, I'm not taking anything from you. So the guy says, look, I'm, I'm so um, convicted by this experience. Let me take Earth. Two of my servants are going to carry as much as they ca- can carry and um, on a donkey. Uh, please, like, let me take the Earth from here and carry it back to Assyria so that I can pray on the Earth and, and worship God and sacrifice to God, right, on the Earth that I've taken from Israel. So he takes the Earth. And then he goes through what um, Nathan just explained in terms of the fact that he still has to go through this whole thing with the king because he's, he's his um, officer and, you know, please just forgive me for that. And Elisha tells him, go in peace. So that's where we are. Okay, verse 20. Verse 20, chapter 5. I'll read. Yeah, go for it. Um, 20. Um, so Gehazi hurried to, after Naaman. When, when Naaman saw him running down toward, to, when, sorry, when, Na, when Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him is everything is everything all right he asked everything is all right Gehazi answered my master sent me to say two young men from the company of prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing by all means take two talents said Naaman but he urged Gehazi to accept them so <laughs> what just happened? So you see that um, Elijah's Elisha's uh, servant, like nah, he just let him go free. So he runs after him, and he's like, "Yo, can you pay pay me? Because like two people in my place need this silver and whatever." Okay, cool. Right, so so he said, Azor, right? Man thought, no, 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 a foreign man can't come up to the prophet and get his whole arm healed and and, and take nothing. No, 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 sorry, no, he needs to um, he, he he needs to pay something. You know what? Let me go and I'll get the money. So you can imagine in his head as he's running after Naaman, he's thinking about what excuse he's going to tell him. Right, what am I going to tell this man? Elijah has already told him he's not he he doesn't want to take any money. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to have to think of this thing. So then he says, oh, you know what? There's, um, there's, two, there's two men coming, two, two prophets coming down from Ephraim. And, you know, we need, you know, some silver and some change of clothes. So um, if you can give me that for, for these two guys, there was no two guys. Let's, let's, let's call it straight. There was nobody that needed any money. There was no two guys that needed garments. He just wanted the money and the clothes for himself, right? So, okay, so he, this is premeditated. I'm going to this guy and I'm going to lie to him. That's what just happened. Okay, cool, let's continue. 20, um, 20, where do we get to? 23 or 24? This is um, 24. And when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and displayed them 
in the house and he let the men go and they departed. But he cool. went. All right, cool. Let's stop, let's stop there. Sorry. Um, so Naaman says, cool, cool. You can take, you can take the, the money. He, he, gives the, he sends two servants with the man so that he can carry all this stuff because a talent is like 75 pounds, right? So you can imagine two talents of silver. You've got 150 pounds there to carry pretty long distance. So he sends two men to carry it with the change of clothes. And he says, cool, 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 right? Then before he actually gets home, what does he do? What did he say to the servants? Verse 24. Mm, to put them in the house? What it says. Right, so he took it out of their hand, right? And put, uh, to take it into the house and he told them to go away. What does that suggest? Kept it for himself. He's keeping it for himself, but also he's trying to what? Hide it, yeah? Yeah. He doesn't want, to, he doesn't want Elisha to see the servants are about, are about because then he's going to be like, oh, what are Haman's servants doing here, right? So Gehazi, at this point, you know you're in the wrong. You went to the man, you lied to him about the thing, you, you they're carrying it back with you and, like, as you get close to your home, you're like, oh, let me take it and you can go. Um, yeah, go back to the name and let me, I'll take it into the house so you can, you guys can run off, right? I don't want I don't want Elisha to see that. Okay, cool. Let's continue. Verse on 25. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. Okay. <laughs> what just happened? You lied to Elisha's face. Bold. But it's like, it's like, you can imagine, right? You've, you come up and it's probably a bit of a distance. So you're probably sweating a bit, maybe panting a little, right? And you walk through the door thinking that Elisha isn't going to be right next to the door when you open it. <laughs> and you open the door and you're kind of panting and he's looking at you and you're like, and he's like, oh, like, where did you go? And he's like, oh, uh, um, I didn't go anywhere. So, <laughs> 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 For me, it's the chest that he says it with. You get me? <laughs> uh, yeah. But Gahazi, why are you sweating? Oh, I, I, I did a few push-ups. But Gahazi, why is there dust all over your feet like you'd be running? Oh, um, yeah, what happened is <laughs> it's, all, it's all a bit chalky from here on out, right? But he said, I didn't go nowhere. And what's, what's silly about this is he knows from... If, if anyone should know what Elisha is capable of in terms of how, the relationship he has with God, the double spirit that he got, um, that God gave him from Elijah, you should know at this point, just fess up. You know what I mean? Uh, so you know what? I went to go get the silver for my man. Just just call it what it is, because he obviously knows at this point. But anyway, he says, no, I didn't go anywhere. All right, 20, verse 26. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee? 
when the man turned again from his chariot to me thee? It is a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants. The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. So wow. he thinks this is harsh. <laughs> or do we think it's justified? <laughs> I, th I, th I, think, I think maybe the thing that people maybe struggled to get, and to be honest, the fact, I think it's something that we have lost sight of today is the fact that God doesn't play. And so what we're seeing in the last story, in, in the last account and in this biblical account, it's just this thing of like people thinking that you can trifle with God and he doesn't see or trifle with God's people and he doesn't see. Well, mm. like you, can't, right. you can't complain. Yeah. You can't complain, do yeah. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. That's, that's, that's what I was saying. You can't, you just, you okay. can't complain. What's, what's deep about this, right? Obviously, right, Gahazi is, as you said, like, he had he had a chance, he, he had a chance to fess up and he didn't. But what's mad is it says, is, is this bit, it says, not only shall leprosy cleave unto him, but it says, leprosy shall cleave unto thee and unto your seed, Right? So if it stopped there, that would even be bad enough. So you're going to get leprosy. Your children are going to get leprosy. But then it says this thing. It says forever. Forever. Your seed is going to have leprosy. <laughs> Understand, man told one lie. Okay, yeah, he's, maybe you can account it as stealing. And you told a lie or a couple of lies within this web of lies that you went through. And your, you and your seed are going to have leprosy forever. Maybe those people that we see uh, lepers in, um, in Jesus' time in the gospel are from Gehazi's line. I don't know. Right? But this is a serious curse. This is a serious punishment. Elisha won't put in no punishes. First, first she, she bears come and more to use. And now... Man's servant has got leprosy forever. What do we think the moral of the story of this is? Um, I think we could actually equate this straight to um, Ananias and Sapphira of just this thing of you're trying to lie to God. And especially the fact that as much as knowing that this is what maybe the Pope wants to say, I, I don't really usually use this terminology, but knowing that the prophets were again God's representatives on earth at the time. You get me? So when God had to speak, he came through the prophets. And so you're going to lie to one of the prophets' faces. You're going to attempt to lie to God, knowing that that's whose, whose spirit is running through the prophets. Then that's a little bit mad. 
and we saw how that worked out for Anlines and Safari in the future. So, yeah. As you say, it's a good comparison with Anlines and Safari because this guy isn't just a normal, rather than male Israelite. This guy is a servant of the Prophet, which means you're the one who signed up to, let's say, seminary school. You're the one who wanted to learn from, from Elisha. You know, you're there, you're learning from him, you're getting spiritual food from him, you're you're spending time, you're probably studying the scriptures, you're doing you're doing bits of Elisha, right? And so therefore the standard that you need to keep is needs to be better than even what Haman showed earlier in the chapter. Haman, when he was going through his his process of having to clean for leprosy, exercised humbleness. It was like, you know what? I don't want to go bathe in the Jordan, but I was told I'm going to go there and I'm going to be humble. So I'm, going to, I'm just going to go do it. And on the flip side, where we see the man of God who should be who should have a higher standard than a heathen um, officer is nothing is, is anything but humble. And so we see almost like a paradox between um if we're a follower of God, of Christ, right, we really need to hold up the standards. We can't, and now because of what he did, right, the, the influence that he's had on Naaman is now different. Remember when I was saying before, Elisha told him specifically he didn't want him to pay for anything because he didn't want him to have an idea that the gospel had to be paid. The gospel was a free gift. But now because of Gehazi's actions and because of his example, Haman now is walking away thinking, oh, okay, I can just pay for things and it's calm. There's an expense to this thing. I can't just have salvation. And so the, the, for us as Christians, the responsibility is massive when we start messing around and start um, doing things outside of what God has told us to do as Christians. The example we set is, is, is a heavyweight. Do you think that Naaman ever found out what happened with this, with the rest of this? Like after he left and went back to Assyria? Because obviously he's now interested in their God and stuff. I'm sure he may have occasionally sent people to get things or find out stuff. But do you think he ever heard the conclusion of that? Um, I don't actually think he did, but... Um maybe he was maybe when he went to go sign something he was like oh yeah go talk, chat to Gahazi things over and they were like yeah, yeah Gahazi's not in the picture anymore so I don't know maybe um but it doesn't seem like he did in within the text anyway okay so that's the second story and we're gonna go we're gonna touch on our first um first story now and you know I did this as a, almost like a contrast because those first two were quite um was God exercising his judgment on, in full swing, right? So this one is going to be a bit more merciful. So um, so again, another story of Elisha. We're going to go to chapter six. And we're going to start reading from verse eight. Finishing in 
Do you want us to start reading? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Eight. Now the king of Am- Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent the word to king of Israel, beware of, pass- beware of passing that place because the Aramians are going down there. So the king, so the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God time and again Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. One of his servants said, Not my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel. Tell of the king of Israel the word. I think we skip to verse um do verse eleven and then twelve. Okay. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elijah, the prophet that is in Israel, tell of the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in my bedchamber. Cool. So what just happened? And this is what I meant by um, Elisha starts getting a bit more reputation um, when he's in full swing of his ministry, right? But um, but yeah, what's going on? Elisha won the king. Yeah, so basically the king of Syria, right, is obviously trying to fight Israel. Um, and he knows that the king goes to a certain place like say every week and he's like right we're going to ambush him there we're going to go into this thing this is a secret council and we're going to ambush him then elisha gets told from god that this is going to happen and elisha tells the king don't go to this place because they're going to ambush you the king says okay no problem um and he even sends a spy to check out whether it's true and it was true and the king avoided that place and this happened two or three times where the king of Syria was like, okay, we'll try it again. We'll go to this different place where the king hangs out and we'll ambush him there. And Elisha did the same thing, right? And so the, the king of Syria is like, someone's, someone's leaking information in my camp. There's no way the king would know exactly my attacks this whole time. So out of my generals, which one of you is leaking information? Who's the snake? And the generals say, ah, oh, it's none of us. It's, it's this prophet Elijah that keeps on, that God keeps on telling them uh, what, where we're going to attack. So what does the king of Syria do? In fact, we haven't got that yet. Let's read verse 13. Sorry, guys, where are we reading right now? Um, chapter 6, verse 13. Thank you. And he said, go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and com- 
and compass the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. So obviously this servant is not Gahazi, because, you know, this is a, this is a new servant that Elisha got. Um, and so Elisha is chilling in Dothan, and this is where he, his, his almost operations are, are being taken up from, where he keeps on sending messages to the king of Israel. Um, and he wakes up one morning and there's, there's a whole army of the Assyrians outside his gates, outside the sea. And Elisha's servant wakes up and he's like, ah, it's, it's all a bit sticky out there. Um, and Elisha's like, don't worry about it. Verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Cool. All right. What do you do? You guys, do you guys think about angels a lot? I might be listening. I listen to you. And I know we, we we have that angel thing going around, but yeah. <laughs> I was just going to bring up the angel thing. <laughs> I'll beat you to it, but. Yeah, so, so understand, right, what's happening in the story. Elijah, I don't think Elisha sees the angels originally. I stopped doing New Year's resolutions and setting goals maybe two years ago, to be honest, because, yeah, this world is trash. So, but um, aside of that... Is that his, his mic is on? I uh, D, just mute for a second. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, at this point, right, Elisha is, I don't think Elisha actually knows, not that he knows, he doesn't see the angels around, right? But Gehazi, uh, not Gehazi, his servant comes up and says, oh, there's a problem, these, 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 uh, this army is around and there's a problem, what are we going to do? And man says, don't worry, there's more with us than there is against us. And he prays to God to open his servant's eyes and what the servant sees is a whole host of angels around the Assyrian army. And I'm asking you guys, do we think angels are just around now? Yes. And when I say that, I'm, I'm, I'm mainly referring to the fact that we know that we all have an angel that stays with us. Well, God um, as, 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 as far as it can. As yeah. far as it can, right? Uh, we're not really sure about the mechanics of that relationship, but yes, we will have guardian angels, right? Um, and what? And so, and what do you think comes with the guardian angel? Like, why is the guardian angel there? 
because it is very probable that they're not even probable because the devil also has his agents out in the world um, seeking ways to tempt us and actually if we're being honest ways to kill us 100 and so we're, we're now in a point right where it's very easy to go through life not thinking about anything spiritual at all not not completely oblivious just walking about your day and this whole thing could be happening around you and you would have no idea but the good thing is that when the war in heaven happened and um the, a third of the angels get got cast out that that means there's two thirds of the angels still in heaven and so the two thirds outweigh the third um, that is that left plus you have God on your side so ultimately at this point if we could understand the, the power that we have um, around us there's, there's no problem there's no issues whether they look like the angels of Ezekiel or not there's no issues All right so but the story continues so let's continue verse 18 18. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he strike them with blindness, and as Elisha asked, 19, as Elisha told them, this is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I'll lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Cool. Alright, so this is Elijah, first thing in the morning. Man wakes up, his servant is chatting, saying, oh, all frantic, there's, a, there's an army outside. Don't worry about it. God, please open his eyes. There's angels everywhere. Then Elijah, this is again, first thing in the morning, prays, says, God, could you just blind the army, please? The whole army is blind. And then he walks up, so you can imagine that one of the commanders or the person who's leading the horses or whatever, and just says, yeah, yeah, come with me, I'll take you where you need to go. And him and this whole army is now walking through Israel, calm. Then blind. The visuals of this are mad. <laughs> it's, it's craziness. Imagine if you're, these, you're, these part, so you're in a village and you're just seeing hmm. a, a whole army just chilling, walking with the, with the prophet towards the capital. And everyone's holding on to each other because they're blind and everything. Nah, yeah, everyone's man. like, oh, try just try not to fall off their horse or whatever the case is, just, just kind of making their way. Elisha's leading us. This is the man that we were supposed to capture. And now we're in, the, our whole army is within his hand at this point. Yeah, cool. Verse um, 20. Uh, verse 20. Sorry, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Um, and it came to pass, when they were coming to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, my father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? He's coming excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I read verse 22? 
And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldst thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared a great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Cool. So, let's break this down. Elisha then takes them into the capital to see the king. This is what they wanted in the first place. That's, this is what all the ambushes were for and all the rest of it. Takes them into this open courtyard. And you can imagine around the courtyard, kind of on the walls or whatever, there's like bow and arrows pointing at them. There's soldiers with spears. They're like ready, like say the word and we just chop these people down and it's done. Right? So the king's like, come on, let's kill them, let's kill them. And Elisha says what? You don't kill prisoners of war. You don't kill prisoners of war. And what's crazy is in their mind, think about it, this whole situation is reversed very quickly. In their mind, they've just surrounded a city and there's plenty of them there, ready to deal with things. Big big men, big soldiers, right? Two twos, now when they next open their eyes and they're next able to see, they're surrounded by a whole city. Uh, arrows pointing at them. This, this, this thing like, oh, literally changed in the blink of an eye. I was, we were there, we were ready to take the city, and Tutu's, now uh, I got blinded and now I'm in the middle of this place and <laughs> I'm about to get shot down. Yeah? So you could, like, this is how God is moving in, in crazy ways, right? But at the same time, Elisha says, you don't kill prisoners of war. Why is that such an amazing thing? In fact, why is that such a hard thing to do? especially for the king to swallow, let's say. I think part of it is just the fact that Israel has passed. Israel is a nation that <laughs> they're proud. <laughs> and, you know, they hate it when obviously God is punishing them and they have to have wars and all of this stuff. So any chance to vanquish their enemies would have been positive for them. But imagine this, they're going to do this and God turns around and tells them, have mercy. It's actually crazy to think that, that from the king's perspective, right, these people have been trying to kill you, not once, not twice, but a few times. These people, these same people that you've got right here have been trying to kill you. So they're your enemies. Straight up your enemies. These people, if they had you outside the city right now, it would be over, be a wrap. And these are the same people who you've now got captured, yeah? And there was this story that I heard, right? Um, a Scottish man, an old Scottish man, um, he, God, God came to him. He, he had a feud with, with, with his, um, his neighbour, right? A neighbour across the street hated him, hated his guts. Everything about him he didn't like, right? And, um, and so the Scottish man was there and an angel came to him and the angel did a following for him. He said, look, whatever you want, you can have. Ask for whatever you want in this world and I'll give it to you. But the caveat is that whatever you get, your neighbor, the person you hate is gonna get double. 
So the Scottish man was vexed. Can you imagine being vexed? You get you get an angel telling you that and you're vexed, right? Angry. Oh, and he took he took a he took a time to think about his answer. Oh, but if I if I get a million pounds, that means he's gonna get two million. Oh, if I get a big house, that means he's gonna get even a bigger house. Like even if I offer wisdom, he's gonna have double the wisdom. And so he came back to the angel and he says, you know what, I've made my decision. Make me blind in one eye. Make me blind in spite, one eye. Spite is a mad thing. Mm. Spite is a mad else. thing. Petty. But let's not pretend though, because in the right situations, <laughs> I know there's times I'm where I wanted to be spiteful. So, Man chose to have. Times where I've been there. How can you do that? How can you choose no blessings just to make sure someone don't get no blessings? Because if hatred is your objective, it's actually a no-brainer. And so, yeah. It's true. Agreed. That's, if, you, if hate has consumed you so much, it's got to the point where actually you don't, do, you don't even care about your self-preservation. You just want to mess them up. That's what this has come to. I don't even care what the repercussions of this thing is. You are just going to pay the price. So even if I have to spend the rest of my life half blind, at least you'll spend the whole of your life full blind. I will take a curse so that you receive double portion of that same curse. Hatred is a is a cancer, right? And so, um, and so we see this principle within the last um, couple of verses of this of this story, um, where Elisha says, "No, we're not going to kill them. We're going to feed them." And what was what was the results? Well, the verse says that they went back to Syria and they did no longer come into Israel. There was, <laughs> can you imagine? They ate their food and they were like, you know what? Fair play. And they never came back. What do you think the moral, what, what do you think the moral of the story is there? It is, I mean, it's obviously self-explanatory, but let's, let's spell it out. Kill them with kindness. Kill them with kindness. Break that down. Just the idea of this, you know, imagine someone, well, imagine someone is, um, someone is determined to just bully you or, you know, someone's messing you up and just the nature of you, the, the, the very act of you just treating them kindly, all of a sudden they don't know how to act. Do you get me? Because... You know, we, we, only, we only treat the people that we like, only treat the people that we love with kindness. The people that we hate, we would never do that for. And that's just the way of the world. That's exactly how it is. And morally, there's nothing wrong with that. And so this thing of treating people different to how they deserve and just treating them with kindness, then, you know, that kind of like short circuits that's starting in their brain. They don't know how to behave. 
um, to you because they're respecting hatred and you're giving them love. Have you guys um, heard of what the eye for the eye um, paradox? And I for well, an eye leaves two, leaves both of us blind or something. Right, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, right? That's what um, Gandhi said. But in terms of biblically, the the um, the the perceived um, contradiction in scripture with this. The Bible would have you given up both of the eyes. <laughs> That's a little bit mad. Well, this is the thing. So the, the whole thing about eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth is found where? In the Bible. In the Bible, in um, somewhere around Leviticus, right? Um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which means... If you get messed up by someone, you deserve retribution. You deserve um, justice. That's what an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is talking about. Right? Then we read this text in, in Matthew 5, um, 38. If someone could read that, Matthew 5, 38 and 39. Anyone there? Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Cool. So does this not sound like a contradiction? In hmm. the Biscuits it says, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus said, quoting that very same thing, it says, you have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, turn the other cheek. What are we saying here? It's an obvious contradiction. It's an obvious contradiction. So, so what the Bible just contradicts itself, yeah? Which, which, <laughs> which takes some <laughs> It's interesting because I'm just thinking if this is what the law, essentially the law of Moses is saying, then it was no wonder they found this, this truth hard to swallow. For sure, right? Especially when you want, you want the eye for an eye and two for a two floor. Like you like that because it gives you justice. Someone's wronged you, you're like, cool, I'm going to get retribution. That's what I for an eye two for a two does for you. But telling the other cheek on the surface does nothing for you, but it gets you slapped again. And so, what is Jesus trying to say? That there's now this is a new, like, we don't, we don't follow the Levitical laws anymore. I think there's this idea that all of the mystical laws were just for the Israelites at that time. So now we're just creating new ones, right? Um, but I have a slightly different perspective. 
when it talks about from the Bible and eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it is saying when you do something wrong, you deserve equal equitable punishment. That's what Lewis Kula was saying. You commit sin, you deserve to be punished. The wages of sin is death. You you um you commit adultery, you get stoned. You do this, you do this. You touch the mountain where God is on, you drop it. Like all of this thing, all of these um, laws that they had and the punishments that they had, um, it was like, it was, this is, this is what happens in terms of the result of sin. Yeah? When we look at what Jesus is talking about, what is the difference between the Levitical argument in terms of, right, okay, if I do something wrong, I'm going to get punished. And what Jesus is talking about. I want you guys to kind of help me get there without me just um, giving you everything. What is this? Isn't this, isn't that thing? There's a verse in the Bible, I'm hoping someone can help me remember where it is. And it says that, I can't remember the word, it says something was given by Moses. But I believe it wants to say that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And what is that, what, what is that really talking about? If you could break it's that talking, down a bit more. This is to just talking about the fact that Mercy actually existed before Jesus, but in terms of what Jesus represented, Jesus represented mercy in its ultimate form. Just this idea that, you know, before this, your understanding literally could be, there is a response for every wrongdoing that we do, and this is just how it is. So it doesn't matter how sorry you are, expect this to happen when you do something wrong. And then Jesus comes along and says, Um, something different which is that mercy is a thing mercy is a thing that I've shown to you and I want you to show it to each other cool right um, was it Linnea who just put that text in um, in the group it says for, for the law was given by Moses but grace through the truth came by Jesus which is what you um, you were say, saying Nathan let me put it this way right thank you Linnea if, if what you deserve is for your eye to get taken out, if you take someone's eye, you deserve for your eye to be taken out, that's your punishment for your sin. However, that is not how God treats you. So if you do something wrong to someone else, you deserve for your eye to get taken out. But that is not how God treats us. God says, if you if you are faithful and just to, um, to confess your sins, he is, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God does not treat us with an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth mentality. And Jesus was the embodiment of that philosophy. As you said, Nathan, grace. He is the embodiment of grace. And so if if someone hurt wrongs me. How can I then go to them and say, oh yeah, I, I for an eye for, and a tooth for a tooth? 
when that's not how God treated me. And so when we're talking about um, Elisha being merciful here and saying, you know what, don't, don't hurt them, don't kill them, it's, it's this idea that although I need retribution, although someone's hurt me, that's not how I deal with people hurting me. How I've hurt people, they deserve retribution. I deserve for my eyes to get plucked out. But for them hurting me, Jesus didn't deal with me that way. So I'm going to deal with them how Jesus dealt with me. And so really there's no paradox. It's just the understanding of this is what I deserve versus this is not what I got. Therefore, this is what I'm going to give. And the result of that mentality is that you actually turn your enemies into your friends. Or at least they're not your enemies anymore. People are likely to, to, to love begets love. Like we, we know the text, we love God because God first loved us. You can't think that somehow you someone doing something wrong to you and you doing the same thing back to them is somehow going to make them happy with you. Oh, okay, we're even now, great. You punch someone in the face and they punch you back. You don't, you don't, it's, it's not then, oh, okay, cool, cool, right, we're even now. You continue throwing punches. But if someone punches you in the face and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm good, it's less likely, if, if it's just one person swinging, it's less likely that the fight is going to last that long. Mm. We are called here to be ambassadors for who? Like Gahazi should have been. Like Gahazi should have been. You know what I mean? And when we don't live up to that standard, we have an effect on other people. And it's interesting because what you just said about love begats love, you know, is it's the same. It's the same of the reverse. When someone does something to you, when someone shows hatred to you, hatred is what naturally stirs up in your heart. But for us, obviously, it's the whole thing of can we actually bear to allow God's love to actually take the place of that and learn to be loving and not and, and not hateful as is customary. Because let's not pretend there's nothing wrong. There's so many, there's, there's quite a few moral ideas and spiritual ideas that are different. And a lot of the time we say that if you have morals, you're good. But I think even a perfect example of that is that, that, that philosophy that says, I respect you if you respect me. Because I don't know, guys, I, I grew up with that one. That makes perfect sense. But that obviously, and this does, you know, no one wants to go around being disrespected. But it's almost like the Christian perspective is just that, like, I'm going to give you respect anyway. And it's almost like, yeah, and it's just like the Christian perspective is like constantly us going the extra mile and extending the extra hand. And obviously, let's not pretend it's not something that's easy to do with yourself. 100%. And therefore, we're left with the conclusion that there is no justification for retaliation. There is no justification. If someone hurts you and you're like, okay, cool, well, you're going to get what you get. Um, and God comes and says, what was that about? You can't say, well, yeah, yeah, they did this to me, so 
that's it's, it just doesn't fly like that. There is no justification. The only way to react to someone doing bad to you, according to the Bible, is to do something good for them. That's the only that's the only response that is acceptable to God. Am I wrong in thinking that the name of this study was Nature and Nurture? Um, yes, you are wrong in thinking that. Okay, well, where did I get that title from? <laughs> um, beats me, my friend. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough, no, I made it up. Great. The, title, of the, the title was three, three Stories of Elisha. All right, I really did make that up. That's my... <laughs> That's my <saying. laughs> right. um, well, yeah. With this anyway. Um, we said that I think you know we do we do come a little bit into nature and human nature and not just human nature but like just natural law in itself isn't it causation um when you do something there's a reaction and a response here um well or, or opposite reaction and um I think one of the things that you know we 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 learn just as human beings is that the world is not fair, but we do our best to make it fair. Yeah. And that's kind of what I hear in that Levitical law. The world is not fair. People will lie to you, steal you, steal from you, commit adultery, you know, um, all of these things. So we have this law that now makes sure there's a reaction. And yet all of a sudden we've got New Testament equality now, which says actually life isn't fair. Get over it. It's never been fair. God isn't fair to you. So learn not to be fair to other people in a way. Yeah. And it reminds me of um, this verse in Matthew 18, 7. Um, it doesn't relate as much, but it's like a, a good example of this kind of thinking. It says, um, woe unto the world because of offenses. Yeah. And that's pretty standalone. Um, you know, <laughs> trouble on the world because of people causing offense to each other. Yeah. But then it goes on and it says, for it must needs be that offenses come. So this is Jesus. This is um, in the words of Jesus. And he's acknowledging the fact that offense is like almost a natural part of our human condition as we are now. Yeah. People are going to do things to each other and it's not going to be fair and they're going to be offended. Um, and that in when it says for it must needs be that offenses come, that doesn't just make it seem like it's a part of life, but it's also like an essential part of life. There's something for us to learn and to grow in that experience. So just because life isn't fair doesn't mean that we take nothing from it. It's almost like actually, guys, unfortunately, to get better, you do need to experience offense and things being against you. Um, but the end of the verse says, but woe to that man by whom the offence cometh. And if I read it together, it says, woe unto the world because of offences, for that it must needs be that offence come, but woe to that man by whom the offence cometh. Yeah? And that last bit, I don't think when it says, but woe unto the, the man that who, but I'm sorry, that causes the offence, is saying, woe to Reuben for doing this because... You know, when I go and I take something from my brother, oh man, that's going to be so bad on Reuben because his brother's going to come and get him. Yeah, It's not really talking about that in my mind. I think it's talking about God himself actually being the one that causes woe to the offender. 
like God is the one that judges and he's the one that actually handles that business. And I feel like one of the messages that we're picking up from everything that we've been talking about is that actually when we accept the fact that things aren't fair, we're not accepting it in terms of like, you know, only what we can do, but we're, we're kind of like yielding it to God and saying, Lord, I'm not seeking my fairness myself. Um, I'm going to ask you to do that for me. And that's when we're not really looking to get our own back on people because we've got a knowledge now that God is the one that will have the final say. And we don't have to get our own back on them because we're not trying to secure anything. We're not trying to prove anything. He's just going to handle business and he'll take care of us, but he'll take care of them too, for better or for worse. And I think that that's like the message from all of this is like yielding it up to him. And instead of trying to seek our own um, equality, allowing him to do that instead, even when it seems like it's not the same picture that we have. Because, you know, <laughs> how this all ties in, but, you know, there's there's a whole spiritual world that we can't see, as um, Elisha's servant found out. Um, and so we have to trust that, that if we follow the things that God is telling us to do, then everything else um, will, will work itself out. Um, our responsibility is to that first, and then everything else is God's responsibility. Um, for sure. But okay, let's. Um, has anyone got any other points before we close? No? Okay. Um, Pastor, do you want to pray for us to close, please? Um, let's pray. Okay, and Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day you've given us. Thank you for blessings to give of life today. Thank you for being with us throughout the Sabbath. Thank you for the Bible study that we've had today, Lord. Pray that everything that we've learned in this Bible study we use into our lives. Uh, I pray that we shine through you, Lord. You shine through us, Lord. And pray that you help us spread your word to other people, Lord. And pray you be with us the rest of the day. I pray us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Cool. Happy Sabbath, guys.